Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello everyone, welcome to It's Anita Rani. Now today's podcast was recorded quite a while ago actually in one of my favourite cities in the world, Mumbai. Oh, there is nowhere more exciting than this place. It's the home of Bollywood, it's a fabulous city by the sea, it's sexy, it's cosmopolitan, it's youthful, it's fashionable, it's hectic, it's in India, it's amazing. And whilst I was there, I got introduced to this awesome young woman called Anusha Yadav. Now, she set up a history project online called Indian Memory Project. She wants to collect photographs of people's history and be able to tell the story of India through photographs, not through history books that have been probably written by men and a lot of them written by white men. She wants to tell the story of India through women, uh, globally. Maybe some of you have family connections to India because the British were there for 200 years, so a lot of you probably do. She wants to gather as much information as she can and tell that story. And as well as that, we open the podcast with a bottle of wine so you know we're going to have a bit of a laugh. I'm with Anusha Yadav, who... Anusha, how do you describe yourself? Uh, I'm a creature of many things, uh, but I am a... I do several things. I'm a photographer, I'm a photo archivist, I'm a graphic designer, I curate uh, thematic-based shows, uh, and these are... A some of my favorite things I do. And the reason I'm talking to you is because I'm in Bombay and I've been filming uh, this BBC project and I thought, right, let's meet some awesome women. And a friend of mine went, you've got to meet Anusha. She's a badass. Uh, so I've invited you to my hotel room. We're at the Taj Land's End. We're overlooking this quite lovely pool, watching lots of tourists swimming. This used to be a workhouse during the World War II. No way. A lot of people, World War II soldiers would come here, dock a lot of... They say prisoners, but I'm not so sure because they had a few hours that they would be allowed to let uh, roam the city, come back, maybe work, come back. And then and then it was brought, was bought by the Tatas, I think, after many years. And it's now a hotel. That's, in, that's a wonderful bit of insight. Look at that. Two minutes in and we've already got some. Bril- so World War II, so the, the Indian soldiers who were. No, there were soldiers from everywhere, from Italy, from South East Asia, from whoever participated basically in the World War II. And that included Indian armies, I mean, Indian people. Of course, because Bombay was a really important strategic point. This was the port where. This was the, this was the point where people would come and stay. This was like a workhouse. Amazing, amazing. Look, you know what I'm going to do? Because I can do this in my hotel room and I've got a really long wire. I'm going to offer you a drink yeah. from my mini bar. Yeah. What would you like? I've got... 
There's white wine. Oh my God, I'm going to high five you, woman after my own heart. I thought, I wonder, right, you know what? White wine, I've got white wine and whiskey. Yeah. I'm going to give you the mic, right? Whilst I go over, just hold it like this a little bit away. And if you could describe um, where we are and give us a sense of what Bandra is and where whereabouts in Mumbai we are, and then I'm going to go and get the bottle of wine and bring it over. With, yeah. yeah. So uh, this place where this hotel is, Taj Land's End, actually is right at the, it is at the Land's End. It is at the end of one of the corners of Bombay. And uh, it's one of the several areas that used to be a village, which has just, just exploded into becoming this hipster place. It's like the Soho of London and the, you know, uh, Times Square of Manhattan. But uh, it's beautiful. It's hugely, the, pop the largest population is Catholic and the fishermen, the Kohli fishermen, um, uh, you know, the the tribal villages, uh, the Marathis. So it's actually a constituency of several kinds of ethnicities. Um, interestingly, this entire street, Bandstand, is actually, as historically has been traced, is uh, were actually owner, they were traders of opium. And uh, so a lot, you know, a lot of the people who own land on this on this area is actually they were opium traders, <laughs> and they eventually switched to cotton because once the opium business failed, then everybody switched to cotton, and then <laughs> and then that's rest is history. And, and it's really and very relevant British history. So um, we're going to come back to that, but first I think we need to pour this wine so you all know that is happening. <laughs> Sula, Sula, Indian's finest. And it's cold and crisp. Inconsistent as well. Inconsistent, great. It's my favourite. Every bottle can taste different. Cheers. Cheers. Pleasure you too. Right. So here you are. You, um, you're a graphic designer. Yeah. Uh, you've worked in advertising for yes. 20 years. Yeah. And yet you have this phenomenal... Um, <laughs> passion and all this information about yeah. history yeah. like within 30 within, within five minutes you've told me where that this used to be a workhouse world war ii that they used to trade opium on this street and then cotton well, they didn't, didn't trade it here but all the land owner all the house owners are all opium traders <laughs> but nobody will tell you that that's why they're all beautiful houses <laughs> yeah we are in a really affluent area yes, as well yeah yeah so you've set up and the reason um i mean obviously i mean history is your passion yeah. but you've made it your life Yes. You've set up something called the Indian Memory Project. The Indian Memory Project. Tell me about the Indian Memory Project. Uh, a lot of things uh, eventually have connected back with, uh, I mean, a lot of my skills have eventually connected back to this project. It started uh, because I had this idea that uh, photographs, I like photographs that have a context that tell stories, whether they're contemporary or they are uh, art or they are documentation. And I was interested in, uh, and India, uh, or the subcontinent per se, is largely undocumented. I mean, it's a lot of it is the British point of view or the academic point of view, and none of it is actually the people's own idea of what their history is. And people is what make history. I mean, it's without us, there would be nothing. And so the idea started with that I want to, I connected few different ideas, which was photographs. If I give them a story and I cross-reference uh, situations, circumstances, events, names, places that I could actually build a whole library and people could check it. And the photograph itself is becomes a sociological evidence that this particular person has been contextualized. And so it basically is that it is tracing a history of the Indian subcontinent using photographs and family albums because 
we are the people and this is the evidence that we have. Uh, and evidence, I mean that the photograph exists, so hence that person existed. And there is, a, I mean, it's an embarrassment of riches here. Yeah. And you have a wealth of history and a yeah. wealth of beautiful stories. Yeah. And, uh, and I just don't feel they're not, I don't know them. People aren't talking about them. Certainly the film industry isn't telling them. Yeah. Um, so are you finding that this is, are people interested in wanting to discover their history or know about their history? I think... Uh, I mean, lack of all mod modesty here, but the moment Memory Project, Indian Memory Project started, it actually really started uh, taking a life of its own within a couple of weeks, not even, I didn't even have to wait for months. It was just, it just took the place by storm. And in some ways, it sort of revived an, a, a radical new interest in, in history. People were ra lay, lay people and, you know, just ordinary citizens were interested in in telling their stories and wanting to discuss photographs because this is what we did in living rooms anyway. We would sit with families and over pour over albums and exchange family gossip. But this is as a there's a I can't remember who said this right now, but history is gossip well told. You know, you just I love that. It's just that it is it has context, it has event, and everybody will have their own idea of history, you know, because the way you experience it. And everybody will have their each to their own memory. And so it's 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 just sort of changed the way people were suddenly interested in history because of partly because of Indian Memory Project and also because there are lots of people who are trying to make efforts in smaller ways. And I think it was just the right time at the right moment. The technology had taken off. Facebook had in, in had introduced photo sharing. Uh, I had enough of a network to ask, beg people to give me stories. Uh, they trusted me enough to say that this is not going to be taken advantage of. Being a photographer helps because I'm aware of rights, copyrights, uh, and I I protect my own. I'd like to protect other people's, how it is, how archives are appropriated. So people send you their photographs or people upload them. And then do they do they know about the stories behind them? Are they sharing that? Are they putting the photos into context? Or is that something that other people are able to research? Because often these photographs mean nothing and people just have them but don't know anything about them. So what they do, actually, a lot of them know a basic story. And when they send me a basic story is when I start asking them questions in return. And that's when they start filling in the gaps because I need to fill those gaps. And the interesting part is a lot of people take their own history for granted. They assume that you know. They assume that you will know what happened between 1945 and 1947. But actually... Our generation doesn't know because, you know, we, we, we live in continuity uh, of our lives that we assume that the younger generation will know who, after a few years, nobody will know who Indira Gandhi was. But unless you keep keep it, keep it alive in some way and send the memory. So yes, they upload. They also email. They I also stalk and nag people personally. Uh, I ask them questions. Uh, I research stuff of my, on my own and then try and connect dots. And yeah. And what's been one of the most, some of the most, give me a couple of examples of some really surprising photographs that you've received. Uh, I mean, there's one, there are lots of surprising photographs, but some of the things I find that where I realize that people assume that we, that everybody knows what they're talking about is when somebody mentioned that they had taken two years off before, but uh, while partition was going on. And, uh, and I asked them and she came from a noble family. So I, and it was like, but she said, yeah, you know, two years, we didn't study, we didn't go to school as if it was the norm. And I asked her why she said, well, because partition during partition, two years of, of colleges and schools were closed. So we don't even know that we have a generation that has been not studied for two years. Wow. 
and I didn't know that. And you know, and you know, I'm partition. I've just made sort of yeah. two two so programs about it. Your family was in the thick, in the yes. middle of it, whereas these are families who are not in the middle of it necessarily. Probably even protected. Uh, who a lot of people, especially who came from elite and rich families, and who are not experiencing partition, some of them are not even aware it happened. You know, until much later, because they have just been so protected, and so it's. So you, these are the incidents. I didn't know, for example, I mean, I did get to know after a while that the photography, um, the really the the pioneers of photography in India are from the Northeast, from Tripura, which I had no idea earlier. But, you know, you get in, people get in touch with you when, the, when this gentleman from Tripura got in touch with me saying that my great-great-grandfather was the guy who was one of the two camera buyers apart from Leela Dindayal. Had a photo studio in the palace. His wife was a photographer, third wife. Uh, they would take self-portraits together. You know, this is in the early 19th century, posing as an intimate couple. You have to back up a little bit for, our, for, for the listeners, of which there hopefully will be many. Um, tell us about the history of the photograph in India. Who, who was it that first brought the camera and when, how, how, when does it... Started actually, it was an Irishman who introduced uh, William O'Shaughnessy, who introduced India to the daguerreotype in Calcutta. He was a, he was a man of many skills. He was a surgeon. He was a chemist. He installed the first longest telegraph lines. He introduced ganja to the medical community. He and he introduced the daguerreotype, and suddenly the world went. You know, as they say in Hindi, "Janta pagal hogi." They all went mad. Was that the pot? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, they went mad because of the photograph. The ganja was already there. He just introduced it to the medical community. And that's what his contribution was, is that this is something that can... Actually, it was a, like lowering blood pressure, but then it's that apart, it is included in Ayurveda, Ayurveda medicine any, in any case. So uh, he introduced uh, photography and then people started setting up studios. There were British couples, uh, Irish couples setting up small studios. And then it just started taking off because then they set up a Royal Photographic Society. A uh, couple of women got involved. Cornelia Sorabji, who's supposed to be the first attorney. I think I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but she was the first barrister in Indian courts. I think, or maybe she was parallel with somebody else. But she was one of the members of that society, one of the few women. Uh, and yeah, so just they just, uh, and Lala Dindayal was, and then the camera came in, this king of Tripura and Lala Dindayal were the two people who bought one. Lala Dindayal was funded, the Tripura king could buy his own. And, and yeah, it started... It was an interesting process. There is a lot more to this history. I'm just giving. No, up. I love it. I mean, there's just so much more. Um, but there is a there is a tradition and a wonderful Indian tradition of painting the yeah. photographs because yeah. I've seen those. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me about that. What? Why? Why did they do that? I think it was to come as close to reality as you as they could. Uh, there would be no other reason uh, for the, to, for them to do that. That they wanted to create a semblance of reality and as close and actually in a way remove themselves from painting from the idea of painting which was more traditional and had a different uh, look and a perspective but uh, and for example now i'm trying now i'm trying to uh, do have fun with the people's archive of india which is something that uh, i've been fascinated with the documentation that the british did of the indian tribes eight volumes of them thousands and th I think thousands of images of just every single tribe that they could find their 
hands-on, photographed, documented and sent back to the Queen. How <laughs> wonderful. And thank goodness they did that. Yes, they were blooming good at documenting yes. things. And finally, See, that's one thing the British did well. They taught us how to document. I think we, we do it on our own, but to have a long vision that how it can come handy in the future, because documentation is a form of power. It's It's a form of control. And this is what this was, was also a form of power because the, after the 1857 mutiny, they figured that they didn't know much about India. They didn't know what would trigger and so they needed to document people to understand people or in a way exert more control. Uh, and that's what they did, yeah. Have you got access to those photographs? Where are they now? The people of India archives are everywhere. They're in the University of Chicago. They're with private collectors. They're in, in the British archives. They are with University of Toronto. So there are many volumes that were printed, uh, not too many, but they lie with people. But they are also in public domain. I mean, you can appropriate them as you like and uh, refer to them, yeah. And this is an amazing way of learning new things about history, surely, because so much is documented. It's a glance, but it nonetheless gives you an idea of how diverse this country is. And this country, I keep saying we are a continent pretending to be a country. We are actually like Europe with only one, one thing in common, which is the currency and a flag. <laughs> That's all we have in common. But it's somehow we are bound together by fate or by destiny. Why is that? Because you're right, India is a subcontinent, uh, but every state is so different, so many languages, food. The way people look is vastly different from the east, the south, the northwest. So what is it? Why is it that it works as a country? It works as a country because, one, it's profitable. Let's be very clear. I mean, these things are all about economics. I mean, uh, Nehru wanted India to come together also. Yes, he had a vision, but it was also about power. It was also about how profitable it would be. And I think the one place where it becomes sort of obvious is their, their, their attempts to take over Hyderabad because the Nizam actually did not want to be a part of India. But they threatened him. They did all kinds of things. It was also one of the richest states of India. There was a lot of money. Uh, and they needed to control power. And number two, having Pakistan and China as neighbors doesn't help. You need to unite <laughs> to be able to. So it was economic. It was strategic. It was a lot of things that brought us together. And uh, we sort of went along with it. And and here we are. Here you are. <laughs> and I'm interested in knowing what your upbringing was like. Because I think you, well, you lived through, I think, like, you, you know, since the economy opened up in India in the 95. Yeah. And... You graduated from uni in 97, so you entered the workforce just as that was happening as a woman. How have you seen things change in, in India for you? I mean, you let's get this. You, you, you're from a city, right? So you're not from the hinterland. You're not from a village. You're, you're a modern Indian woman. Well, I have an interesting background. I was uh, brought up, I was born in Britain. Uh, another sip. Oh, you're born in Britain. Whereabouts? In uh, near somewhere near Hyde Park. Now, I do not know. And I was, oh, she's posh. Yes, I was posh. My father was a teacher's assistant and a student of physics. But he was also, I vaguely remember, I was born in a hospital that got burnt down. So I don't, something with Beeb, the Baptist Hospital. Well, there you go. If somebody knows... Get in touch and let us know what's the hospital that burnt down somewhere in Hyde Park. No, it was not in Hyde Park. My house was in Hyde Park. But anyway, I was born in Britain uh, and then my father decided to move to America. And then we came back to, then his mother threw a tantrum saying, come back home. Like good Indian sons, he came back. 
regretted it after a few years. But anyway, we lived in Jaipur. So I was sent, I actually didn't even know how to speak Hindi. And in, it's very interesting when I hear somebody speak in a British accent, suddenly I feel my, pal- my palate change and I get the words stuck because it's, it's muscle memory. Um, and uh, I went to an all-girls school. Uh, yes, my family was interesting because uh, they were not rich, but they were intellectually very rich. They were interested in education. They were interested in cultural arts. Um, I think it was, uh, my uncle was one of the biggest Hindi writers of the country. So it was fed into us that we cannot be mediocre. You know, whatever, even if the chapati is made it better, be ground. <laughs> like, yeah. Perfect. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> but I'm... fortunately, my mother did not insist that I make chapatis. Lucky you. <laughs> so I mm, trained in music. I trained in dance. I trained in arts. And then I got through... Uh, design school. What a wonderful, yeah. well-rounded and spectacular upbringing and stimulating yeah. conversation there must be in your family when everyone gets together. Yes, it was because it was, again, everybody discussed everything from politics to literature, uh, but it wasn't as much as I would have liked now that I think about it. Yeah, it's never as, it's never as much as you like, right? But then you kind of just have to make it your own way. Um, that's how, how I found it's like it was never there for me. It was never. So you just got to go on your own quest. Um, but that would have put you in quite an elite group of people in this country. It is elite, but it's also uh, conservative in the sense that I was brought up in Jaipur, which is a conservative city. I mean, that's Rajasthan, up in the desert. Beautiful Jaipur. Beautiful. But it is conservative. It is patriarchal. It There is a lot of... Uh, we've all had experience. I mean, we used to walk around with safety pins and compasses in the school bus because it would have meant that you would have to, you know, defend yourself by doing that. I also went to an all-girls school, which was very conservative. In the end of the day, they were a great finishing school, even though it was run by Maharani Gayatri Devi. It was her school. Culturally, up there. But uh, to give confidence and courage to do more, it was uh, biased. You know, some women were okay, but some women were not. But more or less, it was conservative. Has that changed in India? It, it seems to me that it's still quite a d- deeply conservative society. It's deeply, deeply conservative. And it really then boils down to per family and per family member and how do people get together and bring up their children. Because it is about nurturing. You you sort of, somehow with me, I feel that it was nurture just helped, but nature had a role to play because I I always felt like a misfit. I was not interested in casteism, even though it was all in your face again. In Rajasthan, conservative state, also casteist. There was also gender bias. There was also, you know, uh, idea of fairness height I mean all kinds of any judgment that you can think that can be passed on a woman <laughs> very good at being judgmental aren't we Indians in particular you're right kind of yeah how tall is she how fair is she and the the, the caste system which is now that it's being done away with right I mean l- but legally no legally yeah but I it's going to take a while it doesn't get out of your system that easily this is like thousand years of caste being not I'm exaggerating when I say thousand but Hundreds of years of caste being a part of just the way of life. and So for anyone who doesn't know what the caste system is, it's basically a structure that's been around for, what, hundreds of years? Yes. Where you are born into whatever the family that you're, the, 
the work that your family does. And that's it. You cannot leave that. So if you're a potter, which is what my family did for however many generations until someone gets educated. City on clear right now. <laughs> I know, right? If I, I've actually brought a pot back after I did my Who Do You Think You Are. It's in my house. It's on my piano and it's got some lovely dried flowers in it. Yeah. But it's from the, the earth, from my ancestral homeland. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but yes. you'd get a subsidy basically because you belong to that caste. Is that right? Yeah. So I need to think about a business opportunity then, I don't I? A friend who jokingly went to, who is a potter by choice, who went to a potter, to the municipality to ask if he could drop his cast because he wanted the subsidy That's and amazing. he was thrown out. That's amazing. Oh no! Oh no, tell him I'll do him a deal. I could get him in there. I'm, I'm well in with the potters. But, but, but it's, I mean, we're laughing, but actually it's quite sinister because if you're born into the lowest caste, that's it and and, and the untu- it's horrendous like if you, you people literally will not touch it something that you've touched and uh, in fact one of the stories on Indian Memory Project is about a lady who worked with me and she was my cook for for years she would like I was like a housekeeper she would take care of my home take care of us all of that and when I asked her for her story and it, I did not and I don't I know that she was a Buddhist but I did not know that actually they belonged to a caste that converted to Buddhism mainly because they wanted to get out of the of the caste uh, trauma that they had suffered and uh, and now they are hardcore Buddhists and this is what a lot of them do they will convert to Christianity or to uh, uh, to Buddhism purely to just escape the traumas that it was going to bring them. You would. That makes perfect sense. Of course you would. But hang on a minute. This religion's treating me really badly. I'll go and be a Christian or a Buddhist. Buddhists are cool though, aren't they? Essentially, uh, and this is something I, I mean, I feel that centuries of trauma of invasion uh, and centuries of when when you have a government that is not going to look out for you, there's no dole we are getting in any form. There is no healthcare. Uh, you are dependent on a family, if, whether by choice or, you know, you, or reluctantly. And when you are in put in a position, then you have no choice but to tug along whatever the family says and however you are being brought up. And that also uh, imparts a sense of low self-esteem. So I actually believe that India is a collect- it suffers from a collective of low self-esteem, that we don't feel that we have the courage to step out of our boundaries. I, I, that's really interesting you should say that, actually, because I, I sort of feel the same. Yeah. But I feel, and you know better than I do, I feel that that's changing. I feel now you have a generation who live in cities like Delhi and Bombay who are confident. And there was a time, I think, when British people certainly would come over, and it still happens to some extent because it's fair skin and tall, blonde head, blue eyed but it, there was a real sense of deference, particularly if you said, I'm working for the BBC. Now you kind of come to Bombay and you're, I'm trying to get interviews. People don't care. Yeah. They're like, yeah, well, you know what? We've traveled, we're international, we've studied abroad. We're just as good as you. It is true. And also, um, I mean, I've lived abroad after, I mean, I went to study in Brighton uh, for a few months. I also went to the US. And you feel the, the warmth that you get at your own home is different. And you're fortunately, you're living in a time where the world has come together to do well you know and but again it's so much has got to do with the right place right time that I belong to a certain kind of a crowd I you know I work with a certain kind of crowd by virtue of having invented the memory project that is this international phenomena the you get access like nobody else so it's a blessing it's fortune it's not because everybody else gets it yeah right so but how have you so from growing up in that conservative 
Nice. By the way, we've got to do another program about Gayatri Devi. <laughs> like, what a fashion icon. Yeah. Like, that's a separate, separate program. Um, and she was a Maharani who just, Google her, Google her. Also, another bit of information, if anyone is interested in reading a book that really describes the caste system beautifully, read A Fine Balance by Rohinton Mystery. It's it's beautiful. Um, so after graduating and, you know, having this experience of being in India and, and abroad, how have you seen your life change in the way that we, we have seen India from afar rapidly change? And people are constantly talking about the economy opening up. The world is here. It's the most exciting place to live. It's all for the taking. And you worked in the heart of one of the most exciting industries here, yeah. advertising. So how, did, how, did, how have you seen it change? How, how has life changed for, a, for an Indian woman in, in, that lifetime, in the last 20 years? Uh, I have to confess I've had it much easier than many. I was somehow uh, got away with doing a lot uh, more. I had the courage to, I found the right people to, who would support me. Uh, I found great teams. I also, yes, there was also harassment and all kinds of other things. But I somehow just got past it without any heavy traumas. I just decided to. Is that because you're from uh, an educated family, because you hold yourself a certain way? It's a personal choice. I just dis decided I did, it was not worth my time. And also because I knew that I had, that I had the power to, to uh, bring damage to the people's lives if I wanted to. It what do you mean? To explain that. That I could have actually com uh, filed a complaint and brought people down. But I also knew I had that power to do it. And I think, th and the thing is, I, they knew that I had that power. I just decided not to because I actually, it didn't, I didn't care for it much. I got over it after resolving it. Because in the beginning, you start asking yourself whether you have done something, whether you have come across a certain personality that has cause them to take it for, to assume that you're available or to assume that you are, uh, oh, so you are the school person, so I can do whatever you, whatever, you know, we want because we are your bosses. Right. So did you come across kind of sexual harassment in the workplace or just... Yeah, just I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm no, no, going yes, around. No, 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 I understand. I'm just making it clear. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's there. But uh, that apart, I have had a fantastic time. I've met some really good people. And yes, you also learn, a lo keep learning along the way. I also met a lot of amazing women along the way from the beginning of my career uh, and so you know you you just you learn how to hold yourself uh, in professional regard because of them and how they handle themselves how we work professionally where the boundaries are what is appropriate what is not appropriate and within those boundaries then you start uh, doing the best you could it also helps to be very good at your work it actually really is the probably the only way out sometimes I think is to that none of this will happen because that's not the only thing that you bring to the table. So it's I mean your your gender and is and your your beauty and your style and your you know your idea that you're available is not something that you're bringing to the table. You're actually bringing skill, hardcore skill, and so. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I did well, and I got the right support at the right time, uh, the right advice at the right time. I had uh, part of my family were also feminists, men, women, both. And so we sort of, you know, we meandered and navigated our way around brilliantly. Having said that, India is still not an easy country to do business in. I mean, we are paying, the tax rules are changing every day. Daily life is a struggle. I think misogyny is endemic as well. I don't, I mean, I've tried to interview men here and they've not looked me in the eye. They don't want to shake my hand. They call me ma'am. And I guess that's just a cultural thing. But I'm like, dude, just, just call me an eater. It makes life a lot easier. So, I mean, I mean that you have to contend with so much. Obviously, I've met some awesome people as well who totally get it. But there's still, it's it's almost, I feel like it's a country that's just, just trying to figure out its identity. That's where we are. We, We are literally just trying to figure ourselves out. And that does not apply. It applies across generations. I mean, I've seen my mother change her point of views over time, right? And I think it it also happens because of the world she says she sees we have access to, which is very different from her world, very different from what she has experienced. So when she's when they when I think when the el- senior citizens or elders are looking at the new world out there, also mainly the world changed very drastically because of the internet. I mean, extreme. I don't think two generations had seen that or three generations had seen that. But it changed so rapidly that then everybody needed to just keep up. And because you get you keep up or you get left behind. <laughs> Don't you think? I think this is amazing. I mean, I, during my Who Do You Think You Are, it dawned on me, um, which you saw, which I'm amazed about. It's like, yeah. So when I so when I was trying to get in touch with Anusha, a friend of mine, RFD, who said, you need to talk to Anusha. And I got, she forwarded the message you sent to her saying that you saw my Who Do You Think You Are. See, that's the world getting smaller, right? Because you, well, it's, it's Indian history, so obviously you're interested. But, you know, I realized, I realized that I'm the first woman in my entire family ever to have choice in my life. And I think that is something that is unique to Indian women because in the West, kind of suffragettes were doing it. And I guess they had like, you know, they had the 60s and there was all sorts of kind of sexual liberation happening. But for us, we are that first generation. We also a generation, fortunately, and not in where we've taken uh, a leap to, you know, afford defying family that you will get through it because you really believe in what you do. A lot of thing, a lot of the problems come from fear of not being able to defy what your family wants you yes. to do. And it's still there. And it's and I would say it's it just brings you down. It, yes, you still regret it. it. No, it corrodes your soul. Yeah, it does. And I know it because we're all part of it, yeah. right? It doesn't matter how liberal our families are, how educated they are. That it's just it just exists because, as you said, fundamentally, the previous generation 
they don't even, they don't, like the internet changed our life. Like my, our mother's, I don't know about yours, but my mum had an arranged marriage. She had no choice. And then her, her, she was brought up to just put up with whatever that marriage was. Yeah. The idea that then I was like, well, I'm just going to marry who I want. And I'm going to, yeah, it's just... Yeah. It's, yeah, like, but it comes from financial independence as well. I mean, as for women, um, it's that if I ha if I'm financially independent, I actually don't need to depend on anyone, yes. anyone at all. I mean, you know, you really then just need a man to love only. You don't need him for the money. You don't need him for sperm's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, sperm's pretty good as well. I mean, that also if you want it, I don't. <laughs> no, well, that's the thing. If you want it, exactly, all on our terms, which is yes for our parents' generation. Yeah completely and so you're right they're having to adapt yeah. and their brains and their cogs are kind of spinning around and it must be difficult for them yeah. it's difficult but i think they have no choice you yeah. have to you have to catch up or get left behind exactly i, I yeah i'm with, absolutely 100% yeah. with you the idea that you can impose your your jet set you know generation old thoughts and values onto a young generation it's like let the women do what they want but it's really difficult and i would say anusha and you probably know this it's probably harder for girls living in Britain than it is for metropolitan women in India because they're stuck in a time warp. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. you won't believe, I mean, I know girls whose families won't allow them to show their legs, who aren't allowed to. I remember growing up and girls at the temple, Sikh temple, not being allowed to shave their legs. I mean, it's madness. Yeah. But yeah, because that's their only way of hanging on to the memory of, of India is that this is what they know and this is what they're going to do. And then the stubborn of being able wanting to stick with what they've been taught you know I always used to ask my mum I always used to say like that all these poor girls are being like constrained by the family what's the worst that can happen what are you terrified of that she'll get pregnant or she'll become a drug addict I mean seriously but those can't be the only options right it's possible that your daughter actually also does great things yes. it can't be just that the only option she will be using when she gets freedom is drug addiction I know <laughs> it's unlikely oh, that so would be a choice it's bonkers. I'm like, so I don't know what they're afraid of. Like, surely just let her fly. It's just not knowing. They haven't seen a bigger world. And so, you know, they don't know what will happen. But that's another thing which the internet does is that it opens, it is simultaneously helped other people's brains also open. And yes. they're seeing a lot of people and, doing it. And importantly, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but the girls who live in the hinterland of India. So it's what well, it's fine to talk about, you know, living living in Bombay and there's girls walking around in hot pants and whatnot. But it's the small towns and the villages where girls' lives are very different. They're getting access to the internet. They are. Having said that, it's still not time yet when they can be walking around with hot pants, but eventually they will get married and eventually it'll be an arranged marriage and they will have, you know, three kids and they will they're going to regret their choices much later. But that's because they don't have access to any better. And uh, But all I'm saying is that all of this, find recovery, finding our identity, finding courage, finding gumption to do things, it's just begun and it's going to take a while because we have several hundred, I mean, several centuries of things that have been told otherwise. And it makes me terribly excited to be an, an Indian woman right now. Yeah, it is exciting because it's almost like discovering new things that you haven't, right? It's not as if you can take, a, I mean, every day there is something new that we can discover, not just about the world around us, but even about ourselves, with questions with that we never asked ourselves. It was just not an option. Like, you know, like questions about 
uh, would I like to uh, pose uh, naked for a photograph? I mean, these are just whether I do it or don't, or some ask somebody else to do it or don't, is not the question. It is the question is that will I have the courage to do something like that? And it's actually quite silly an example I'm giving, but, no, but I'm, yeah, 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 you know, it's just that uh, appreciating uh, femininity that it comes in all forms, shapes, and sizes, and abstractions and expressions. And there are, I'm sure, hundreds of questions that I haven't even asked ourselves, uh, asked myself. Oh, it's exciting. And there's so much, and that's, I mean, I was just actually, whilst you were talking, was thinking about she sort of the, the emancipation of women. I, I believe it was a, the royal women, a royal household, where they used to, the royal families of India used to travel and go to London or whatever, and they would live a life freely, and then they'd have to come back to India and live in Purda. And I read that they wouldn't even travel in the same car as their husbands when they'd arrive back. And there was one queen, I don't remember her name, but it, they came back from a trip to London and her husband actually said, you know what? No, sod it. Yeah. You get in the car with me and you don't have to cover your head. And it was the moment where things started changing, that actually a woman in a royal household decided that she was... Gayatri Devi's mother. Yes. I think. Indra, Indra? no. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well. Yeah, she was like the first... Uh, there was also the Gayakwar... Uh, yes, Gujarat, uh, the king in Gujarat. We'll have, to, we'll have to do a whole program about yeah. that once we'll do our research. I want to come back to your memory projects because that's what this is about. And and you, I know. Let's talk about the who do you think you are because that's awesome. Like you actually saw my who do you think you are in a lot of them. Actually, yours just happened to come my way, and yours is of course closer to home because it's something I can identify with. But I be I discovered this uh, in 2012, I think. Uh, and I couldn't get enough of it because I think it was such an interesting way to learn about history. And uh, more, and the most interesting part, um, one was uh, before yours was actually, I think, uh, Gurinder Chadas, yes. And there was also Mira Seal. Exactly, absolutely. And I think she, uh, what I, maybe this, and this is interesting, parallelly at the same time, I had heard about how people in Haridwar record deaths and births which is, you know, they literally touts of your, your, your birth certificate. In your it's bonkers. I have no idea how those pundits know. It's just a cupboard. One, I did my head, you think, well, it's just a cupboard of scrolls. Yeah. And it's interesting. Then the conversation came up because there was somebody complaining that, uh, that he had gone to Haridwar and the tout was complaining to him that his son does not want to carry the business on because he wants to come to Bombay and become a singer. So who's going to carry this? entire business forward but anyway I so I watched a lot of them and I was interested in seeing how do we look at our past when we discover good bad ugly and we are so forgiving of of everything when we are looking at the past because that is so much time gone I mean somebody discovering that uh, you know somebody was an actor somebody had married three times somebody was a prostitute somebody yeah. was a, you know a, a gigolo some, I mean there were all kinds of and things. and we don't care like we just think actually it's awesome I said to my mum when I was making my who do you think you are my mum was like oh everyone will know everything and I was like you know what I hope there's some sex and scandal because I want to know that like somebody was like out there being rebellious to yes. do you know you, you make the best of your life you do the best you can and that's what Everybody was doing. Yours was, of course, it was, one, it was brilliantly done. It was brilliantly done and the way they've gone out. And of course, it is a very sad story. It is, I mean, you know, so. But during that process, I, and actually I've just done another two-part program, which I'm going to send to you for you to watch because I managed to get to Pakistan and photographs were 
the, there's a moment where you have to see because as you know I found I was basically given a photograph of a woman I'd, I'd never met and somehow she is now part of me yeah. Pritham Kaur this woman I didn't even know existed that photo of her she's part of who I am and like she has changed my life it's making my hair stand on end just talking about it and I went to Pakistan and you talk about how forgiving we are I went and stood on the ground where I don't want to give the punchline away of this. I'm, it's a big spoiler alert, but it's fine. You know what happened um, where oh, the family was massacred. Yeah. It, was a, it was a big massacre of a thousand Hindu and Sikh families. And I w- was talking to the, somebody who was a child when it happened, whose family members committed the massacre. It was a moment. Yeah. And he was sort of not really wanting to engage with me. The moment I pulled out the photograph of my ancestor yeah. is the moment everything changed just that photograph the power of image yeah the power of image and it's uh, interesting how many things it will bring up because our memory is not linear it doesn't go year by year like history books but it goes all over the place and you can segue into many kinds of conversations and ideas and that aunt and this uncle and you know nothing is connected but eventually it is all connected and uh one of the things that has started happening with Memory Project was that people started talking about pain, which we have not done for for years. And, as, and especially after partition, people did not talk about it. It was a collective silence. It was a collective silence because we needed to literally, again, going back to that, you had no government to take care of. You had no, nobody's looking out for you. You have to just get on with life. Yeah. Well, well, on Pakistan was celebrating the creation of a of a new country. Yeah. India was celebrating independence. Where, where in all of that do you allow people to yeah. grieve and deal with the horrendous situation that they just witnessed? And so they just, but interestingly, it only affected the north of India, right? Yeah. I mean, the south of India was not even. I mean, they'd heard about it, but it didn't affect them. But so. It's And also the idea that how much people started talking about pain, they started talking about taboo subjects. And I think the first uh, time I decided that I'm going to talk about it, I want a taboo subject to be included was my own aunt's suicide. And that's another thing that people never spoke about, which was death and uh, things like suicide or sex scandals or elopement or all kinds of other things that people consider a taboo that I decided that I will mention it. And... Uh, and that was something that changed because then people started talking about their uncle who went missing or somebody else who committed suicide or somebody who ran away from home and got married, uh, all kinds of things. But it's still, it's, it's, I feel the project still has a long way to go because I still haven't got stories of uh, queer stories, for example. They haven't yet come my way. So tell me, how can this podcast help then? So what are you looking for? Because obviously yeah. Britain has this 200-year history with India, with this beautiful subcontinent. And as I discovered through my partition program, there are families who have photographs, they have archive. They want to know. British people want to know about what their families are up to here. So how can people get involved? How, what can they do to help to be involved? Choose a picture uh, that sort of that they are curious about and start internally asking those questions. And and then you can send me the story and I will edit it and ask more questions and 
you know, contextualize it and upload it. And so it becomes one more clue to this entire baffling history. Uh, but also uh, one of the things that also happened uh, because of this project was I last 2015, I did a show in Britain on the history of Indian crime. And we were, it was something I wanted to do. I'm interested in anything dark light. <laughs> so Yeah, the darker, the better person. Darker, the better. <laughs> and I think my general quest in life is to unravel the, seek the truth. Not, not, there is no absolute truth, but just to seek whatever I can find and, and, and uncover what is hidden and and bring it to light. I'll tell you what I'm getting from you, which I love, uh, is like your, and it's the same as me. It's like the, that the because there's so much of Indian society that is all, everything's a scandal. We don't want to talk about anything. Like you say, suicide, elopement, um, whether somebody, I mean, the idea that someone might be gay. I mean, that's what you said. We're still trying to get our heads around that. Ma mental illness. None of it's talked because it's all such a taboo. I sort of, I'm with you. I want to kind of just go, so what? Can everyone just talk about everything? It's not as if it's just come about, right? It's been there since human beings were born. So it was also looking at the idea of crime and how have we photographed crime and how evidence photography is appropriated, non-appropriated. Some of them are dark stories. Some of them are light, fun stories. Uh, and the idea of how we look at photographs. So it was also about that. I mean, these are questions that I have wondered. How is it that not one person has told me a story about where they are a product of an, of, of an illegitimate grandfather or grandmother? How come nobody has a, a family that were, were pro the products of criminals? I mean, it's, these things exist, but they will just not talk about it because it, they feel that it brings shame, but actually it has nothing to do with them. Oh God, the burden of shame. I mean, it just exhausts me now. I'm like, really, come on, everyone shed the load. But it's so right, we need people to, we want people to come out and just... I think it will happen in time because it's now beginning to change and the more, and I think people are willing to, literally like me and you, are willing to also chuckle at a lot of things that have happened because it was a different time. Yeah. It was a different belief system, a different value system, a different way of living in society. So they did things as that time, but it's also funny to, you know, to some some things. For example, random things can bring about, you know, random stories. I have a niece who discovered that her great-grandfather, well, that was not a discovery, we knew that. He was a guy who was trans making Hindi to English dictionaries. He made the blueprint of the dictionary. He was translating encyclopedias. He was writing, uh, you know... Uh, uh, books about these princely states and then also happened to be one of the guys who was with, who was uh, responsible for the abdication of the Maharaja of Gaikwar's throne because the British would have said no no remove him and then we'll put our own person and then you sort of negotiated a place that but there was a huge scandal because the Maharaja had ordered the murder of his courtesan <laughs> in Bombay and these are all stories that you know they, they, in family gossip oh kisika murder hua tha. and you'll be like oh my god this and you find out that there's actually it's been documented because the trial has been documented. Excellent. So you, in Memory Project, this is what I also like to do. And generally as a practice is try and connect as many random dots that are unrelated. But you put them together and they actually have a much larger context. I think what you're doing is absolutely incredible. I think um, you are unearthing stories and creating a narrative 
about this beautiful land that I love so much. But stories that, you know, that have have always been here. But like you say, if we don't talk about them, if you aren't doing this project, they'll just go forever. And also it was an attempt to understand how how different we are as people, that there cannot be one idea of we're not just it's not just Bollywood and curries. No, it, it isn't. Thank God. I'm tired of it. Somebody should shut down cricket and Bollywood for a year. You know, take a vacation so we can function. I'm so sorry. I've just made a program about Bollywood. But Bollywood. my pro, my audience is gonna love it, hopefully. Bollywood, cricket and elections. Three things we should not do for one year. And we would be a we would be a superpower by next year. Twenty-two so. thousand rape cases pending in, in offices. Twenty-two thousand. Twenty-two thousand rape cases pending. This was three years ago, and this and obviously the world got to the world was horrified um, when the Nirbaya situation happened, where that girl was appallingly raped on a bus in Delhi and then died. I mean, it's 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 even hard to talk about it and interview. So, you, so. and right after that, there was a photographer who got raped in Bombay in a, in one of the mills, and that was even closer for us because it one it was and it depends, right? Uh, and after. Because suddenly there was a huge hysteria of every case being talked about and being reported. And for good, I, I mean I mean that word in a good way, that there was this whole noise about it and everybody had an opinion and was trying to do about it. But we didn't really, we didn't find a solution because because it became politicized. Or we, you know, the, the funds of Nirbhaya are still pending, meaning they have not even spent a little bit of it. That there are 22,000 rape cases pending in the DNA, I mean, in the truth labs themselves are, is a problem, is a, something to wonder about. So for all this talk about, and me and you sitting here having this great conversation about as, as modern, independent women who are Indian, of Indian backgrounds, I mean, what, what does it mean in India right now? What does any of it mean when you've got this, which is, it seems like such a patriarchal country, um, where actually when it comes to it, women's don't have this the equality fat battle is 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 it's a it's an uphill struggle here to say the least struggle but fortunately we have now some resources to be able to file a complaint to follow due process which is imagine that during the time of our mothers where none of this was there nobody gave gave a shit whether you were raped or, or were dead or anything like that you get on with it but we have that now. We have the capability. It doesn't mean to say that two o'clock in the morning, I'm going to still be wearing hot pants and walking around the city quite easily. But then I have not had felt that safe in even Britain. Yes. So it's not as if it's the. It happens everywhere. It absolutely happens everywhere. And so it's just the idea that I can be able. I should be able to do that anywhere I am. Yeah. Uh, uh, that uh, is an option that we are all looking for, or we hope that that's the world we can. We can experience sometime in our life. I hope I can wear hot pants when I'm 90. Yes. No, I absolutely, no, but here's the thing. I want to wear hot pants when I'm 90. I grew up, I, I was such a prude in my 20s, you know, kind of brought up and like also lived through the grunge era. And now I'm like, actually, the older I get, the more outrageous I want to get. Yeah. But it's good fun because I am very excited about my life. Yes. And uh, I wish, I hope I have a long one. I hope you do too. I'm excited about your life. I'm excited about your projects. I'm excited that I've met you. I'm so happy that we've managed to talk. I feel like we need to like put this away and just carry on drinking this wine. Um, 
Anusha, thank you so much. Pleasure, Anita. I mean, I was looking forward to meeting you today. So great. Yes, me too. Me too. And uh, what's the what's the website? Oh, my! I have uh, two websites. Actually, I have three, but two worthy of your time would be the. Uh, it's called www.indianmemoryproject.com, and the other one is www.anushayadav.com, which is my photographic work. So yeah. yes, check them both out and have a look at those beautiful old photographs. And if you do have photos of your family that are connected to India at all get involved India, Pakistan, Bangladesh as long as it's con- it has some relation to the subcontinent you don't have to be Indian you don't have to be Pakistani as long as your story comes from or is related to this land and there's plenty of them out there so do it do it let's all get involved in this um, wonderful project that Anusha's doing Anusha I adore you oh oh by the way I officially crown you Arani's Rani wah 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 where's the tiara <laughs> yeah. thank you Next time, I'm going to be talking to the remarkable 18-year-old Syrian refugee, Maya Ghazal. Her story is not to be missed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.